book of Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah here now begins for us this, it's the, the beginning of the section of the prophetic books that we're going to be looking at here, and, and perhaps there's no greater prophetic book than the book of Isaiah, all right? Now, the prophets were men that were called of God to reveal the heart of God. It would often happen through prophets coming along and foretelling, because we know that God is able to, you know, unveil the future and uh, kind of warn or prepare even people of what he was going to do. And so here's God using prophets to let them know of things that are coming as God unveils, sees all that's going on. But also prophecy is not just a foretelling of future events. It's also a just foretelling of God's word. It's revealing God's heart. It's revealing what God desires to say to his people. It's revealing and then also applying the word of God here for us. So not all prophecy is predictive. Some, some prophets spoke simply just to, to share God's heart, to share God's word that was applicable and pertinent for their situation, of course. Now, within the prophetic books, we have two major sections in those prophetic books. We have, first of all, the major prophets made up of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you got the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament there. Now, the major prophets aren't major because they're more more greater in any way or significant in message because they're all sharing God's word. It's all very significant, relevant, and important, of course. But of course, minor prophets are simply called that because their books, the content that they're writing was a lot smaller. And so they get categorized as the minor prophets. So there's the two divisions. And so that's, as we kind of continue on Wednesdays through the Old Testament wrapping up, we're going to be covering a lot of these or all through the prophetic books now, is that section we're in. Here's some fun facts for the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. And in fact, his very name is mentioned some 21 times in the New Testament. Isaiah, of course, contains the only Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, found there in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah contains more references to the coming Savior than any other book of the Bible. Isaiah 53, you know, is a key chapter in this book. It's quoted or alluded to more than 85 times in the New Testament. And only in Isaiah is Satan referred to and identified as Lucifer, which means morning star or bearer of light. Chapter 14, verse 12, and we'll cover that a bit here tonight. Uh, Also uh, of note, is that when Hebrews contains that you know great hall of faith and all these great men and women of faith, there's talks about those that were sawn in half. It's believed that the writer of Hebrews was referencing Isaiah. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was killed by the evil king Manasseh, was placed in a hollowed out tree and sawed in two. That's what tradition tells us. That's not a fun fact, but that's something to kind of Think about when you think you're having a bad day, just remind yourself about Isaiah potentially getting sawn in two, all right? Then compare how you're doing in light of that. Well, the book of Isaiah here has been called the Little Bible. And this is really cool. If you haven't heard this before, this is really fascinating and interesting because it's been called the Little Bible. Why? Because Isaiah has how many chapters? 66 chapters. And the Bible has how many books in it? 66 books. 
And in fact, the book of Isaiah neatly divides itself because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah details a specific kind of section that we're looking at. And then the rest of the 27 chapters detail the second section, just as the Bible is made up of the first 39 books, the Old Testament, the next 27 books, the New Testament. So there's a lot of neat, interesting overlap comparisons made between Isaiah and the whole Bible. And what's the theme of Isaiah? Well, the theme of Isaiah is salvation is of the Lord. And what's the overall theme of the Bible? Salvation is in Christ Jesus. Every part of the Bible is all leading us, pointing us to Jesus Christ and the salvation that is coming through the Messiah, Jesus. And Isaiah writes with that unity and harmony now of that coming Christ. And just as, um, oh, sorry, I already kind of shared that. But here's how Isaiah breaks down. Isaiah, the name Isaiah is a reference to the very theme of the book, as I mentioned, that salvation is found in Jesus because the name Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord. And and the word salvation is found 28 times in Isaiah. 26 different verses and only 12 times is it recorded in all of the other prophets combined. That's why this book has been so neatly referred to and identified as the gospel according to Isaiah. It's also been referred to as the fifth gospel. Because the whole message, the whole theme is about this, this salvation that we have in the coming Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. Isaiah himself has been referenced as a messianic prophet. That's because he prophesied of the coming Messiah, Jesus, more than any other Old Testament prophet. Isaiah gives a great, rich, prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in his, um, in his birth, in the ministry of John the Baptist that, that comes foretelling, uh, the arrival of Jesus. Then we see that Christ is anointed by the Spirit. Christ the servant is referenced. Israel's rejection of Christ. Um, the stone is stumbling. Christ's ministry to the Gentiles. We've got Christ suffering and death here in chapter 52. His resurrection is mentioned in chapter 55 or alluded to. The coming king is spoken about uh, all through the book of Isaiah. So here we see all these great prophetic pictures that Isaiah is referencing regarding Jesus. So no doubt he's a very prophetic prophet or uh, a messianic prophet here and writing to detail the coming of Christ. Here's the outline of Isaiah that we're going to be kind of following as we go through this book. And we're not going to go through all of it here tonight, but that first section, as I mentioned, chapters 1 to 39, details the prophecies of judgment. And really showing, again, man's need for salvation. All right? Then the second part of the book, which we'll cover next week, goes from chapter 40 to 66. And that is now prophecies of peace. So you got prophecies of judgment, this kind of condemnation of God against these nations that have turned against him. But then you see the second part now where it's kind of turning, just as you do in the Bible, right? Old Testament, you kind of look at that and you go, oh man, sometimes it's, it's heavy, it's difficult. But God is preparing the way again for Jesus and preparing the way for people to receive Jesus. So that's how Isaiah is also written. It's the second part detailing these prophecies of peace and the coming of the Lord. So just a great and interesting book that we have here before us. A little bit of the background now in Isaiah. Isaiah lived around 760 to 679 B.C., Lived during the divided kingdom period. He grew up in Jerusalem and had apparent access to the throne. Probably was a very close um, 
a friend of many of the kings, particularly good friends of Hezekiah. And Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was even a cousin to King Uzziah. So it's possible that Isaiah had royal connections. And he ministered during the reign of four different kings. Uh, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. You got Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now we don't know much about you know, the overall kind of background of Isaiah, uh, except that he was married and had at least two sons, which are going to be introduced for us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 and 8. And even their names have some very interesting prophetic, you know, kind of um, implications uh, to their names. And we'll talk about that coming up here. Now, though we don't know a, a whole lot really about Isaiah's background, you know, where he came from and everything like that, we do know the backdrop for Isaiah's ministry. And it's a very interesting one because he spoke during the time of the northern kingdom of Israel being led into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians, the army that, that God, the nation that God used to come in and, and take away that northern kingdom who fell into idolatry, you know, very quick and very steeply, more so than the kingdom of Judah did. And so Isaiah's warning the nation of, uh, of Israel, the northern kingdom, but then also warning the, the southern kingdom of Judah to say, listen, look at what's happened here to our brothers in the north. They've been carried away captive and the same fate is awaiting you if you don't turn. If you don't turn from your idolatry, from your wickedness, from that heart that's kind of rebelled against God. So he's prophesying of Judah's even future captivity to Babylon even before they were a world power. So very interesting stuff. And his ministry covered quite a range. It tells us in Isaiah 6 that in the year that King Uzziah died, now that would have been around 740 BC. So in other words, Isaiah likely ministered until about 680 BC because he records um, Sennacherib's death in 681 BC. So that's a 60 year spread of his ministry. So it's a very lengthy ministry that Isaiah enjoyed spanning six decades. So he's seen a lot. And certainly had seen enough. And so Isaiah comes on the scene now and he's ready to be that spokesman of the Lord and share God's heart and God's word for his nation. And also speaking a word uh, uh, against all the nations that were kind of around Israel and sort of warning them to of, of what's coming their way because of their rebellion. Now, interestingly, this first chapter here that we get into really kind of stands as a fitting summary of the whole book of Isaiah. Right here in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1 verse 1. Let's read a few verses here. And it says here. The vision of Isaiah. The son of Amos. Which he saw concerning. Um, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Kings of Judah. So there it gives you the timeline of Isaiah's ministry. Right there as we shared. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Interesting. They do not understand is what he's saying here. They do not think about really what they're, they're doing. So here we see God. And he's ultimately really calling all the creation into this kind of courtroom to stand as a witness now in his pronouncement that he's given against Israel's rebellion. Because he's, he's calling, hear, O heavens, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's like, listen up, everybody. 
you're all going to be witnesses for me here of how my people have kind of walked away from me and the words I'm going to speak to them, you're all standing here as a witness now of the rebellion and what I'm going to say. And you see, God has been nothing but good to his people. He's kind of laying that out for them, right? It says that he's nourished them at the middle part of verse 2. I've, I've nourished you. I've brought you up. I've brought you up and out of a very bad place in Egypt. I've brought you into your own land. And yet, here's what he says. You've, you've rebelled against me. God's been nothing but good for them. Brought them out of a bad place and into a good place. And what's the response been? They rebelled. And it didn't, it didn't make sense. See, you'd rebel from a, a tyrant. You'd rebel from an abusive person. But God has shown himself to be a loving, gracious, heavenly father who's going to provide and care for his people. It, it's absurd that anybody would rebel from that. Even stubborn animals, I say it brings up, according to what God's saying, even stubborn animals know better than to do that. Because they're going to return to where they know they're going to receive food and care. Unreasoning beasts show more appreciation than unthinking Israel. That's kind of what God is saying here. How true that is because the story had come out many years ago that an Israeli policeman in Haifa used this verse to bust a burglary ring. See, the thieves were loading their loot on an ox to make their getaway. When one of the oxen was caught, it was made to go hungry for a few days and then it was turned loose. And just as Isaiah said, it returned to its master's crib and the crooks were arrested. Very wise. Just follow God's word. It's going to go well for you. So that's what was done. Because they know even untrained animals or wild beasts are going to return to where they know it's good. But even God's children here now, they had been rebelling and turning away from God. The very source of what was the only good that they've been experiencing. That's what sin does. Sin turns the most kind of profitable or, or understandable kind of things and just turns it upside down to where people just do the most foolish things when you begin to follow and allow sin to dictate what you do. It's exactly the boat that Israel was in. But in spite of all this, as chapter 1 lays out for us here, in spite of all this, we see the incredible grace of God. Look at verse 16. Amazing. Verse 16, God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil and learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool, white as wool. Wonderful words. Wonderful words. God is calling his, his people to come and wash yourselves. Be cleansed. Purify yourselves. He says, put away the evil. Now, these are just real practical things. Like when Paul says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. There in Romans 14 or, or Romans 13 verse 14. It says, put away the evil and put on what is, what is good. What is right? See, there's a responsibility in action we must carry out. Isaiah says, put away the negative things, the things that have been defiling you, and then start to do the things that are good and profitable. Right? He mentions many things. Do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. All these things that, that they should be putting into practice. There's an important role for us, I think, in that, where 
Yeah, we, when we recognize that we've gotten, we've drifted away from the Lord, we need to repent, no doubt. We need to come to the Lord for cleansing. But we don't just sit back and go, okay, everything's done. No, we want to, we want to begin to take those steps that are profitable, that are good, the things that, and it's not that we're being made more righteous or saved by those things. But we want to say, I don't want to just coast. I want to begin to do those things that are, are right and good and healthy. That are going to continue to promote life in Jesus and just following him. And so Isaiah says, wash, clean yourselves, put away the evil, but then do these things. And he says, come now and let us reason together in verse 18. That's a wonderful invitation, isn't it? I love the invitations that we see in God's word. We talked a bit about that on Sunday. Just these invitations. Come and see. Come now. Let us reason together. Sometimes we might receive an invitation that is anything but personal. Right? Whether it be through telemarketers or salespeople's invitations. I was like, nah, I can do without that. But this is one for everybody. And it's reasonable. It's good. It's profitable. God's ways are always reasonable and best. You can try to reason a different outcome or way, but it'll always be inferior. When God says, come, let us, let us reason together. You know that's going to be something that's going to be for our, our good and blessing. Now, he says here, though your sins are like scarlet, and indeed the nation's sins were completely like scarlet. Now, Bible commentator, commentators say that scarlet portrays sin. Not only to denote its dreadful character, but also to emphasize its indelible nature. They tell us that you can immerse a cloth in any color, in any other color, and the stain can be removed. Once red dye has been thoroughly set in a piece of goods, however, no scientific method is known that can successfully eliminate it without damaging the fabric. Even if the material is rubbed and scrubbed until threadbare, the fibers that are left will still retain their crimson hue. See, sin is thus pictured as being indelible as far as human efforts to remove it are concerned. There's nothing man can do to change his evil nature and then turn it into the white purity of holiness. God alone has the power to erase the terrible stain of our sin. Only God can do That's why when he says, come now, let us reason together. It's reasonable because we're not going to find what we need done in our lives apart from God. How we need to be those that are quick to run to the Lord in those times. When we've gotten off track, when we're impure, when we've been stained by sin. How quick we need to go to the Lord and say, there's nothing I can do with this. Aside from come to you, Lord. And ask for your forgiveness. And we know that when we confess our sins, that he is indeed faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Praise the Lord for that. Now, here in, this, in the first chapter of this great evangelical prophet Isaiah, we see the gospel just so fittingly depicted and portrayed. Just this wonderful good news of grace being laid out. That God's not saying, hey, Israel, you need to get your act together. You need to start to you know, fix yourselves. He says, no, come unto me and be cleansed. Come into me and be, be cleansed and be purified. They had been going about it all through their own kind of works and efforts and trying to follow different rituals to be clean. It wasn't doing nothing. It was just empty religion. God says, come to me. It's there that you'll be cleaned. Verse 19. 
It says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The choice was theirs, right? If they chose to walk in God's ways, they would eat and not be eaten. They'd be blessed. They'd experience peace rather than persecution. But God says, the choice is yours. God doesn't override man's free will. He gives them every opportunity to enjoy life in and to be right with him by coming to him. But man has to choose to do that. We have to take that step of faith and trust in the Lord to come to him. The invitation is given. God says, if you're willing and obedient, man, you're going to be blessed. You'll eat the good of the land. Well, the next few chapters reveal now this judgment that was coming upon Judah if they didn't repent and turn back to God. God just starts to lay that out in a little bit more descriptive ways. But let's move on to Isaiah chapter 6. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, we have Isaiah the prophet's commissioning to this work and ministry. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. And here's what we read. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell his people, Keep on hearing. But do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now, this was at this point of time when this was going down, when King Uzziah died. It was a pretty heavy time for Israel and especially for Isaiah. Now, remember Isaiah growing up with this kind of apparent access to the royal throne, perhaps being a, a cousin to King Uzziah. So no doubt was very familiar with him and, and familiar with being a, around, um, you know, the, 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 the palace there. And perhaps Uzziah was some that Isaiah had really just come to, to respect and no doubt love and appreciate. Though King Uzziah had stumbled later on in his life, at the end of his life, he was a pretty good king. He reigned for 52 years. He had a good lengthy reign. And for most of it was really good. Saw some good things happen. But after his death in 740 BC, I'm sure people wondered if that would be it for them. If they'd ever really have another good king. Have the glory days of, uh, of Judah now just kind of come to an end. And now we're just going to be in this continued spiral downward. And the country certainly had been in decline spiritually. Even with a good king like Uzziah. So then what would be the outcome if a bad king came onto the scene, perhaps Isaiah was wondering what he would do now after the death of a friend. That's why it's so timely that at this time, Isaiah saw the Lord. See, when we're not sure what to do 
or where to turn. When times are looking pretty bleak or discouraging, we need to turn to the Lord and always get a fresh view and glimpse of God. And what does Isaiah see? Here in Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord, but he sees the Lord on a throne. He realizes that God's in control. Whatever the earthly rulers might be doing, however they might be behaving and acting, and, and, and the, the people of Israel continue on that, Isaiah recognized right here in Isaiah 6 that, oh man, despite what I see around me, I recognize what's going on beyond me and that God is still on the throne. And that he's in control. And there's a higher authority that still is holding the last word. See, earthly thrones are always going to be unstable, right? But Isaiah saw a throne that would never be emptied and never unstable and one that's always just. He saw the Lord, the one who's ultimately ruling and in control. See, when you might feel as though you've been shaken or things are uncertain, we need to get our eyes back on the Lord. And sometimes the Lord has to remove those things in our lives that we've become dependent on, that we've been relying on, that we've been putting a lot of confidence in. Sometimes the Lord has to remove those things so that we come kind of to the end of ourselves, but back to the beginning of God to say, oh, yeah, I see the Lord anew again. I've gotten my eyes off him. I've gotten distracted. But I see the Lord again. And he's good. And he's in control. He's the one that I need to put my trust in my confidence in my dependency in and when isaiah saw the lord what did he also see he saw his own sinfulness when he began to see the the beauty the holiness of god isaiah quickly realized that man i'm undone i'm unworthy i'm i'm a sinner and isaiah had just been the last few chapters that we just skipped over isaiah's been pronouncing these woes upon the nation's uh, around Israel or upon Israel the, the woes of uh, judgment is coming upon them but then Isaiah quickly realized man I'm no better I'm a sinner just like anybody else he's not saying woe to others he says woe is me in verse 5 see whenever we see the Lord more clearly the more we see that we're undone and that's not a bad thing it's a good realization to come to at times because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And how we need to remain in that place where we're saying, Lord, man, if it weren't for your grace, man, I'd be, I'd be lost. I'd be cooked. I'd be done. And we need to remind ourselves, I, I'm undone because of my sin. But as we look to the Lord, we again get to see his grace and his goodness and the forgiveness that's available to us. And that's exactly what happens to Isaiah. Is that, that angel takes that coal, touches his lips, and, and in a sense cleanses him, but commissions him for the work in the ministry to go and speak to the nations. And now in chapter 7, we see wicked King Ahaz getting a little worried at an alliance that's forming now between Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. And their purpose was to, to come together, but to go against Assyria. Because at this time, Assyria is this world power. Assyria is really threatening the northern kingdom, ready to take them away into captivity. And so Syria and, and, and Israel is forming this alliance together. And they come down to, to Judah, to Ahaz, because they're looking to try to enlist him to be part of this you know, confederacy. But the real motive it tells us in chapter 7, was to come and cause trouble for Judah and discourage 
Ahaz and actually to kind of depose, dispose him and appoint their own puppet king to be able to work with them and really get Judah on their side. So here Isaiah comes with a word for Ahaz to not be afraid now of these two, he calls them in verse four, these two stubs of smoking firebrands. All right, speaking of the, the two kings there, Rezin, the king of Syria, and then also um, Pekah, the king of Israel. These two stubs of smoking firebrands. Isaiah says, Ahaz, don't fret over these two. And God tells Ahaz to ask for a sign that he'd deliver him. But Ahaz says this. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. There in verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, Ahaz's response here kind of sounds pretty noble. kind of sounds like, hey, that's a, that's a pretty good kind of spiritual response. It would seem like he's not trying to test the Lord. That's, a, that's probably a good thing. But you see, in actuality, it was full of hypocrisy. Now, how do we know that? How do we know this is a hypocritical response? Because it was at this time that Ahaz was actually turning to Assyria and their king Tiglath-Pileser for help. Second Kings chapter 16 records that for us. That Ahaz was actually trying to work with Assyria and get on their good side and he's putting more confidence in them than he was in the Lord. Basically Ahaz is saying, I better just get into an alliance with Assyria or else they're going to knock us out. When he has the opportunity to say, God, be my defense, be my help, be my strength. And God even says, ask. That's just not very spiritual. I would never do that. But secretly, he's got this alliance, this, this kind of pact that's in place here with Assyria or, or hoping to have it. And this is where we come to wonderful prophecy in scripture that, you know, often gets read at Christmas time. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the Lord says, you don't want a sign? Well, I'm going to give you a sign anyways, whether you like it or not. And here's going to be the sign. The virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and he'll, she'll call his name Emmanuel. Now we know the eventual fulfillment of this is, of course, in Christ, right? But now what kind of a sign would this be for Ahaz? What's the... The context for Isaiah and Ahaz in this. Now many commentators are divided over what this sign truly was for them in their day. It would seem, however, that it would be a sign in that a young woman who was a virgin when that prophecy was given would eventually get married and then give birth to a son whom she would name Emmanuel, meaning, again, God with us as we know. That was to be the sign for Ahaz and really for all the house of David. And in all things, God is with us and he is to be our help. That's kind of what God is looking to tell Ahaz. Listen, I would be with you. I'm here with you to help you. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to start making pacts with, with other nations to kind of protect yourself. I'm with you and I'll help you. That's the, the sign there that, that God has given to Ahaz. Now, many believe this was fulfilled in their day through Isaiah's second son. Isaiah's first wife may have died and he married again. Married a virgin who then conceived, not a virgin birth, but was a virgin and then, you know, conceived, gave birth to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. The longest name in scripture right there. 
All right. It truly is. All right. Now that name had prophetic implications as we'll see in chapter eight, but it's also possible that he was given the name Emmanuel at, at his birth to remind the people that God was indeed with them. So it had implication for Ahaz and Isaiah in their day, but we know the great fulfillment of this in Christ, that truly a virgin, literally, in every way, conceived and gave birth to a son, who was indeed Emmanuel, God with us. He became flesh and he dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. To where we could see and behold his glory. What a great, a great work that Jesus provided for us in revealing God to us, coming as one of us. Now, as I said, Isaiah had two sons and they provide a a prophetic lesson for Ahaz and the nations. Chapter 7 records for us um, Isaiah's first son, Shear Jashub, in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 7, where um, it mentioned that Isaiah was to take his son and go and speak to Ahaz about these things. His name means a remnant shall return. So again, there was kind of a, a bit of a sermon right there, in, in, or a message right there in, in Isaiah's son's name. A remnant shall return. You're not going to be thwarted. You're not going to be taken out. A remnant shall return. And then, that second son, the longest name in scripture, Mehar Shalel Hashbaz, it means speedy to the spoil or hasten the booty. Now soldiers would shout these words to their, to their comrades as they defeated and plundered their foe, right? They'd yell this out like quick to the, to the spoils. But that was to be a reminder that the two nations, Syria and Israel, who were causing trouble for Judah, would be wiped out in a speedy fashion. God would take care of them. God wouldn't let them continue on with what their plans were. Now over in chapter 9, we see another wonderful Christmas prophecy. You all know it, chapter 9, verse 6. But here's what I want you to catch. Because as you go through Isaiah, and especially that first half of the book, we're we're going through a lot of different judgments. We're kind of skipping over a lot of these these things. But if you were to read through, you know, every every chapter in Isaiah so far, you'd be seeing a lot of kind of just judgment being pronounced upon uh, the people for their rebellion against God. There's a lot of kind of heaviness. It's it's difficult. That's what we see. That's why God raised up these prophets, right? The kings and the priests were to be doing this role of continuing to lead people in God's word and truth and following His commands, but They were getting corrupt. And so God raised up prophets because it was a very, uh, it was was a time of just great spiritual decline in the nation. So God's raising up these prophets because the the climate, the spiritual climate uh, of the nation was very sinful, very bad. He raised up these prophets and speak these words. So this is kind of what's going on. But in the midst of all this, this speaking out against their judgment, seeking them to, turn back to him we see these these great messages of hope because isaiah keeps speaking the word of god which is giving people that opportunity to turn to god and see what he will do for them look at chapter 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us the son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here there's just this great encouragement that's being given for those that were feeling like there was no hope for them any longer. That everything's just falling apart. Perhaps they were feeling that they were just going to be annihilated as a nation. It was just kind of right on the, on the brink. Not a lot of hope. But the word of God goes forth and, and there's the word and the message of this Messiah that's coming. One who's going to be mighty. One who's going to be everlasting. Whose government will not end. In other words, there's a message of hope that though you might see around you like things are in, in desperate straits here. There's one that's coming that's going to establish this kingdom forever. That was good news for a, a wearied or hopeless soul. Hey, more good news came in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verse 1. Read that with me. It says here, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So this hope being shared in this day would, would come through this coming Messiah. He was the branch that's growing forth from the, the roots and the stumps that were left. And it was a fitting contrast to what God was going to do to Assyria. Israel had already been, been referred to as a stump in Isaiah 6, verse 13. Here's what it says there. It says, But yet a tent will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. But here now, in Isaiah 11, the stump is referring to that house of David. The people may have begun to think that all the promises that had been given to them were now removed. It was gone. It was kind of looking like, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. All those promises made to the house of David were now kind of being forgotten. But God is faithful here to show that favor upon them and that, that he is indeed a promise-keeping God. And there's hope. That a little bud is going to shoot forth from that stump and a branch is going to begin to grow from its roots. And it's all speaking of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And interestingly, when this verse refers to Jesus as the branch, it's the Hebrew word netzer, where the word Nazarene comes from. See, Matthew's gospel, he writes in, in Matthew 2, 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Many believe the, that Matthew is referring to this verse here in Isaiah as that identity of Christ. Also of interest, Nazareth didn't have a very good reputation, did it? Remember? Um, oh, Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? John chapter 1, verse 46. See, it showed that Jesus had very humble beginnings. And that is also echoed in our verse here. Notice it doesn't say that a rod comes forth from the stem of David. Isaiah 11 1 doesn't say that. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse? That shepherd guy raising his boys out in the country? What about David? David's the, David's the king. He's the guy. But no, it says it's out of the, the stem of Jesse. 
goes back to David's father. See, all again, just to show that Jesus had very humble beginnings. We're reminded that humble start that the Messiah had on this earth. The house of David had been sitting dormant for centuries when Jesus came on the scene. There was nothing alluring or majestic of his throne at the time of the Messiah. It just all goes to show that God came for people of all backgrounds and status. Can you imagine if Jesus was born to a wealthy family and grew up in a mansion? Right? You kind of think, oh man, that's, that's great, but I can't really identify with that. Maybe he's, maybe he's not my Messiah. He's, man, I sure don't resemble that. But yet, God's grace is highlighted in the way that he sent his son to be born of a lowly family, in a lowly manger, to be raised in a lowly town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So again, it's Jesse, the lowly father, that sheep herder that's mentioned as being the line that Jesus would come from here in Isaiah 11. And the outcome would be glorious. Because here in chapter 11, we have one of the greatest depictions of the millennium in scripture. See, the outcome, what the Messiah was coming to do would be just so wonderful, so great. You've all heard of the verse, right? The lion will lay down with the lamb. That's not in the Bible, actually. It's not there. Look at what we read here in Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Here we see this great depiction of the millennium. We often quote that, don't we? The lion will lay down with the lamb regarding the millennium. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. But either way, doesn't matter. Here's the point of all that, is that we're going to see the effects of the curse being lifted, reversed. No longer having its way. You see, sin has marred this world more than I think we realize. Now, we see the effects of it. We know, we know the, the cause of those effects and that the, the, the work that sin does in our own lives. But the effects of sin are at work in the very world and in creation, in nature. It's seen even through that. Romans 8, verse 19 and 22 speaks of the whole creation eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God because it'll be delivered in that day from the bondage of corruption. Even all the nature, they're groaning together, waiting for the effects of the curse to be lifted, to be removed. Where even nature can once again rejoice in the way that it was meant to be. In that original creation before it was marred by sin. And what a day that's going to be. The millennium age is that 1,000 year reign of Christ. Where Christ comes back to this earth at a second coming and he establishes his throne, his kingdom. Where he rules again physically on this earth. It's going to be glorious. And we begin to see... A thousand years that, again, 
There's no longer sin. Righteousness is reigning and ruling. See me perfect. That the knowledge it says there in, in verse. Um, oh, let's see where it's at. Oh, I forget where that is now. Verse 10 says that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So all people are going to come together and just know the Lord. Going to be with them. Everything's going to be brought back to its rightful order. It's going to be a great time. I can't wait. It, it, you see, and you hear me say this often, but I'll just say it again. Eternity is going to be anything but boring. We think of eternity so often because it gets, it gets depicted in a very cartoonish way sometimes. Like we're just floating around on the clouds with little wings playing a harp, you know, and we think, oh man, eternity. <laughs> I don't know how long, how long I'm going to last with that. But man, eternity is going to be great because, you see, if we're alive at the rapture, we're going to be taken up into heaven. And there's the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period of seven years, Christ is going to come back again with, with his saints at his side. And we're going to be living on this glorified earth once again with Jesus. Where we're going to be in resurrected, glorified bodies. Where we're probably going to be able to move around easily. Move from one place to the next. And we're going to be able to see this world the way it was meant to be. For a thousand years, we're going to enjoy that. And then we get to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. I mean, I'm just like, I can't wait for eternity. It's going to be so exciting. Are you with me? Oh, man, I can't wait. It's going to be anything but boring. Don't ever think that way. I hear some people who are just like, when they think about going to heaven, it's like, oh, man, I just don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't want to leave this world. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Give your head a shake. I'll help you if you need that. (laughs) I'm just like, eternity is going to be incredible. And Isaiah gives us a, a great kind of idea. Just think about that. Children are going to be out playing by the viper's den. Reaching, hey, come on out, let's play. Grabbing a viper. The viper's not going to do anything. There's not going to be this kind of animosity any longer. Maybe that perfect creation. Oh, man. That's going to be fun. Well, in chapter 12, we see, chapter 12, a short chapter, six verses, but we see the, the great program of the millennium. It's going to be one of praise as people are just rejoicing and, and singing praise. Chapters 13 to 23 is the, the pronouncement of judgment now upon the, the nations that are around Israel. These were all nations that, that should have treated Israel better. They, there was that special kind of relationship that many of them had with Israel, even from their, their history together. Some of them even being like family. And so these are nations that should have known better about treating Israel in a certain way, knowing that this was God's chosen nation. And they knew better. And the reason that they're being condemned is because of their mistreatment of Israel. Listen, this is a biblical principle that we see all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, that if you bless Israel, you'll be blessed. If you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. God has established that right in the very beginning. So chapters 13, all the way to, um, well, let me put this up here just to kind of give you a breakdown of these chapters, 13 to 23. And the various nations that are going to be called out now here by the Lord and, and pronouncements of judgment upon them. Chapter 13 to middle part of chapter 14, we see Babylon being addressed. Interestingly, next to Jerusalem, Babylon is the second most named city in the Bible. All right. 
got great significance. Um, now, what's really remarkable is that Isaiah predicted Babylon's overthrow. And how were they overthrown? How were they overtaken? By the Medo-Persian army. Now, here's the incredible thing. Isaiah predicts Babylon's overthrow by the Medes. Specifically, he mentions them by name there in, in chapter 13, verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Isaiah mentions this some 200 years before it happens and before the Medes were ever even close to a world power. It, it's It's crazy. It'd be like somebody saying, you know, um, Canada is going to go against Russia and take them out. You'd be like, why would you pick Canada? Man, that's really rolling the dice on that one. Pick something that at least is going to have a better chance of being fulfilled. That's kind of like what, what Isaiah is doing here. The Medes and everybody's going, the, the who? The Medes? Who are they? What are they going to do? And yet that's exactly who took out Babylon, as God has foretold. Now, in chapter 14, we have a very interesting look into the fall of Satan. And again, like I said earlier, it's the only time that Satan is referred to as Lucifer. It's here in Isaiah 14, verse 12. Let's read a few verses here. Isaiah 14, verse 12. Turn over there. It says here, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heavens. In heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So understand something here. Right away, verse 12, we see that Satan is fallen. How, how you are fallen from heaven. He's a fallen being. Understand that. He may have been glorious at one point. The name Lucifer means morning star. But as the star diminishes, the closer it gets to the sun. So too, Satan definitely has lost his luster next to Jesus. Isaiah 6 uh, Isaiah 14, I should say, records, um, Isaiah 14, as we just read here, records a series of I will statements by Lucifer. And that ultimately was his real demise, wasn't it? These I wills of Lucifer, that was the cause for his fall because he desired to be worshipped and elevated among the creation. He desired to be like God. J. Vernon McGee said he was setting his will over against the will of God. That's sin in embryo. It's the evolution of evil. There's no evolution of man, but there's an evolution of sin. It began by a creature setting his will against the will of God. And that's still the real battle of man, isn't it? This is the way that Satan oftentimes is going to come against you. You see, we oftentimes picture Satan as being this kind of really, you know, grotesque, evil being that's going to come on and just really present himself as evil, where we'll just be like, oh, pfft. That's Satan. I'm not going to listen to you. Look at you. And, and we think we're just going to turn him away, no problem. But you see, what Satan does is he comes much more subtly than that. He doesn't appear as some blatant enemy. He comes very subtly. 
trying to feed your own your own self, your own will. He's looking to to kind of promote that self in you. To get people to live for the exaltation of self-will against the will of God. And sadly, how many people live for themselves opposed to the will of God? How many people are living their life for just all about them? And, and it's the very thing that oftentimes keeps people away from God because they're like, I'm not ready to give up my life. I don't want to surrender. And I want to live for the glorification of me. I want to elevate me. And Satan knows this is the very thing that's going to bring the demise of people because it's the very thing that brought the demise of Satan which caused him to fall from heaven. How we need to learn the principle of dying to self because it's self that becomes the greatest opponent to the things of God. How we need to die to self and say, Lord, not... Not my will. Lord, your will be done in my life, in all that I do, Lord. Let me be living for the glory of God and not my self-glorification because that's the life that leads to the happy, blessed life, the life that's laid down, surrendered. It's taking up their cross and is following Christ, denying themselves and living for him. That's the life that's going to be the blessed and happy life. Well, after the judgment of Babylon... We come to the judgment against Assyria, Philistia, Moab, all the likes you see up on the, on the screen there, and, and a number of nations. Uh, there are all these nations that are kind of have had that history of Israel or, or bordering close to Israel. In chapters 24 to 27, we see Isaiah referencing a time that seems fitting for the events that are unfolding around him, but it also seems to have a greater fulfillment of a day yet to come, a period of time that we call the tribulation. Look at chapter 24. Jump over there. Chapter 24. And in verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Jump down to verse 4 of chapter 24. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The the haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. So here we see the the wrath of God being, being poured out. No doubt there were implications and fulfillment of that in, in Isaiah's day and to the nations that this is being spoken to, but we see the greater fulfillment of that taking place in the latter part of time, in the tribulation period, that seven years of, uh, of God's judgment being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And the earth is going to be reeling in that day. We see that it just is like, you know, being emptied, made waste. It's distorting its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants where it says at the end of verse 6, a few men are left. See, no, no amount of green thinking is going to save the earth, right? I mean, with, that's, the, that's kind of the religion of the day. Got to go green and, and, and save our planet. And we make the planet our God oftentimes. I'm not saying don't be responsible and don't recycle. I'm just saying I don't. So, uh, no. 
Um, I do. Don't worry. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not our God, though. And, and here's the thing. We're not going to save the planet in and of ourselves. God's got to do a work. God's going to do a work of purification. Ultimately, he's going to create a, a, a new heaven, a new earth, as I said already. But the reason all these things are happening is as it says there in verse 5, that they, they've defiled or they've transgressed the laws. They've changed the ordinance. They've gone their way rather than God's way. They've listened to self rather than listen to the will of God. See, the best thing people could do to save the planet is obey God. Follow his word. Listen, you want to see the planet do well? You want to see things go well? Follow God's word. That's the answer right there. That's what people need to come and see. Start by cracking the word of God and living by it. The reason we're in the mess that we're in is because we have turned from God. And, and you just see how that is changing more so by the minute. How people are just looking to kind of wipe out or deny Christianity altogether. Have nothing to do with God's word. It's, it's drastically changing. Uh, man, when I watch the news and I see what's going on. In our culture, I'm, I'm just like, I'm shocked, I'm stunned. But it makes me realize, Lord, you're coming soon. It's coming soon. And, and here's the thing is that, in the midst of it all, here's what we need to do. When, when we look at our conditions and we go, oh man, things are so, so tough, so hard. And, and again, we can fall... Pray to kind of looking at the conditions of the world and going, oh man, it's hopeless. Here's what we need to do. And here's a, a wonderful verse in Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says this, But God, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. It's not a great word for us here. In the midst of what we see in one part, chapter 24, talking about the earth just kind of almost becoming desolate as God is pouring out this judgment. Here's what we know to do. When we see the conditions of the world and we think, oh man, how bad can it get? Here's what we need to do. Just keep your mind on the Lord. Keep your mind fixed on God. Stayed on Him. Because it's in Him that you'll have Perfect peace. Why? Because it shows that you're just trusting him. God, the world might be out of control. But Lord, we know that you're in control. And, and when the world seems like it's, it's falling apart, God, you're actually just putting things in place that you need to do to carry out your will and your good. Keep looking to the Lord. For in Yah, which is just short for Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. He's our strength in these times. What robs us of having peace? When we get sidetracked from the Lord, when we stop looking to the Lord, we allow things to come into our lives that grab our attention and focus. We let troubles worry us. Hardships grip us with fear. All along, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm here in the midst of it. I'm here for you. Turn to me, look to me. Hold on to me. That's what, what Jesus would say to us tonight. And when we look to our problems rather than to the Lord, we're not exercising faith and trust in Him. 
So turn to the Lord. Put your trust in Him and and you'll begin to find that perfect peace of God even in the midst of the storms. So Isaiah takes us through this impending judgment of God against the nations and against the world. That's going to happen in the tribulation. But then he leads us through to the to the millennium again. Look at verse 27. Or sorry, chapter 27, verse 12. Chapter 27, verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown, they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So again, just that great calling. It had implication in Isaiah's day, but often as prophecy does, it's got that dual fulfillment of that day in the millennium when God's going to gather all his people together where we'll be worshiping the Lord together at the Holy Mount of Jerusalem. Man, that's going to be good. Chapters 28 to 35, these are a series of woes being pronounced now against Israel. Israel is in real trouble because they've turned away from just that trust in the Lord. They become reliant in themselves and in others, seeking to make treaties and alliances with other nations. They've been filled with pride, folly, idolatry, and rebellion. And so judgment is looming. The Assyrians, and this is by the doing of the Lord now, the Assyrians are ready to come against the northern tribes of Israel and lead them into captivity. And all this was simply to be a stark warning for Judah and for Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, that they weren't far off. That they themselves were making those same mistakes that the northern kingdom of Israel has made. Look at what we read in chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. So we see here now, just again, this word going out, ultimately against, against Jerusalem and Judah. Chapter 30, verse 1. Look at there. Chapter 30, verse 1. It says there, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt, and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. So God is calling them out again because why? They're, they're putting their trust in other nations. They're ready to walk down to Egypt and say, hey, do you guys, are you guys going to have our back? Are you going to help us in the, in the invasion of another nation coming in? Are you going to be there for us? And God all along is saying, why haven't you sought me for counsel? I would be your, Egypt's nothing. I'll be your strength. But here's Judah in their folly, in their pride. They're going after other nations rather than God. In the chapter 36 and 39, last section we're going to look at here tonight. Chapters 36 to 39 are a transitional section that's detailing some historical content for us. 
these next four chapters serves really to bridge the two sections of Isaiah that we've seen where we've seen the judgment of God, chapters 1 to 39, and then where we'll see again the deliverance of God, chapters 40 to 66. So these four chapters are kind of a good transitional section to just sort of bridge these two together. Chapters 36 and 37 deal with the Assyrian threat against Jerusalem now. Under King Sennacherib, they were God's rod of judgment against Israel, right? And they were to serve as a warning to Judah and reveal their need for repentance. Israel's been taken away into captivity and now Judah's under threat. Assyria had come and they laid siege against Jerusalem. The inhabitants thought that they were goners. Every day they wake up and they see this, this camp of 185,000 Assyrians all counter on Jerusalem. Where Jerusalem, the, the inhabitants were able to do nothing. And they thought, it's not too long before we're just going to starve to death. Or be too weak to fight and we're just going to be overtaken. They were just counting down the days. But God always has the last word, doesn't he? Because here again, God in this passage, and this is written about three times in God's word, I think to really remind us that when we lean on the Lord, man, we're never outnumbered. We always have strength when we look to the Lord. Look at what we read here in verse 36 of chapter 37. Isaiah 37 Verse 36 is a great story. As the Assyrian armies counter on Jerusalem, laying siege, starving them out, weakening them, it says in verse 36 that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisrosh, his god, that his sons Adramalek and Sherazar struck him down with the sword and they escaped in the land of Ararat. And then Ersardan, his son, reigned in his place. So here we see God just taking care of his people. And they're not even deserving of it. But you've got prophets on the scene that are, are, are speaking out God's word. And God comes along and he reveals his glorious plan. He reveals to the people that there's always hope in God. Even when you might feel like you're up against insurmountable odds, all we got to do is bring God into the equation. And suddenly those insurmountable odds are nothing. Because if you bring God in the equation, you're always in the majority. Nothing needs to stand in the way when you have God on your side. And God reveals that to us in that account three times in Scripture. Just to again refresh us that God is more than able. God is more than able. Well, the rest of this, of this section here speaks about Hezekiah and how his life was extended. We talked about that in, in, in Second Chronicles. But then we see that he, he proudly kind of showed the Babylonian... Uh, envoys, all the riches that he had and the, the treasures there, the temple, and it eventually set up the demise of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Hezekiah had his life extended, but kind of used some of that time unwisely. And God would eventually use the Babylonians to come against Judah. And we'll talk about that in the second part of Isaiah a little bit more. 
But here's some application points just before we kind of wrap up here. First of all, as we saw right there in the first chapter, God's invitation has been extended to all. To simply receive his forgiveness and be freed from condemnation, salvation is found in him. Hope is found in him. And secondly, those that continue on in their way, or in their own ways, are not going to get very far because sin will always need to be dealt with. And that's what we see happening in the book of Isaiah. God coming along and saying, listen, you know, you've rebelled. And, and that needs to be dealt with, needs to be corrected. Ultimately, God does it to turn us back to him. But if we continue to be stiff-necked and rebel, then that judgment will become worse and worse. Thirdly, God is on the throne and he's actively carrying out his will. We see that so well here in Isaiah. And then lastly, the word of God is sure and dependable. We see that here, just see these prophecies being fulfilled. How wonderful it is. You know, people question God's word. All you need to do is point them to fulfilled prophecy over and over again. And we'll see some more of that in the next part of Isaiah where there's just this incredible, accurate predictions made that only God could do and reveals that God's word is truly a living word. It's of God and it is dependable and faithfully and count on it. Let's be sure that we are those that are placing our lives, building our lives upon God's word here. All right, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you, God, for this time in your word and that we can come together and just look through it, Lord. And though we've kind of covered a lot of ground and we've had a lot of talking points, I pray that, Lord, there just be certain truths that you're placing upon our hearts Lord, speaking to us individually, applying your word, I pray you just reveal that to us, God. May we go from here just being challenged but being encouraged through your word. I pray for those that are in the body of Christ here that are just going through challenging times, whether it be that they've been discouraged. Maybe there's been little hope, Lord, I pray. As we've seen in, in, in the whole theme of the book of Isaiah, that salvation is of the Lord, that God, all we need to do is turn to you, look to you, and know that we have hope, Lord. And pray for those that have been, been sick, that have been hurting. I pray that you would just bring healing and strength, Lord. God, that you would you just come alongside those that have been down physically or emotionally, mentally, that you would pick them up, make them well. I just ask all these things now in your awesome and precious name, Jesus. Amen.